you know, maybe an hour and then maybe, maybe you can get some kind of androgen receptor. There, it looks like the androgen receptor will be upregulated too. So, so maybe there is a little bit something there, but if you look at the recent, like, um, Stu Phillips lab did a lot of this, like with, with different arm testing and having one group, you know, do legs and then arms. And, and so they, they, but it doesn't seem to have, at least from a hypertrophy standpoint, it doesn't have, it doesn't hold much water. Um, and so I think that the, the big, I wouldn't chase any type, like I'm not doing certain intervals to produce a growth hormone response. Like I, th- I think that's not the way to think about training. Um, to me, like I would never chase an endocrine adaptation. I would never chase something mm-hmm. happening in the endocrine system with my training. That was Dr. Ben House speaking on facts and fallacies in regards to training, exercise, and the endocrine system. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the free lap timing system in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 163 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. On the show, we have Dr. Ben House. I first heard of Ben going through the Train Adapt Evolve website, I think maybe four years ago, not entirely sure, but it was with him and Aaron Davis, I believe originally, I may have that wrong, but when I first stumbled across the website, I was just totally blown away by the um, the, the depth of the information, the training physiology and all, and the span of ideas, uh, getting into a lot of like the Russian stuff and really in the nitty gritty and the physiology elements of it all, and I was just fascinated. And ever since then, I've I've been following Ben, and I've I've seen him in his um, in his functional medicine journeys, and down in living in Costa Rica, hosting retreats with some of the greatest coaching minds in the country, and just everything he's done is really inspiring to me. Ben has a PhD in nutrition from the University of Texas at Austin. He is also a nutritionist, a functional diagnostic nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner. Uh, functional medicine is Ben's life passion and has studied under some of the greatest minds in the world and has continued to regularly attend and present at conferences and seminars around the world. Uh, But Ben is not just a nutritionist and functional medicine expert. He is also an experienced trainer. He has worked as a strength coach with both the high school and collegiate levels. And if you follow Ben's Instagram or any of the work that he does, you know that he is a very experienced trainee himself. And that's the reason that I got Ben on the show today. Well, a lot of reasons. But one thing that was really exciting to me is here's a guy who is really on the cutting edge with functional medicine, uh, but also it's like being able to integrate, being able to integrate um, the wealth of physiology and knowledge of the research into practical training concepts is something that I always love sitting down and having a conversation with those people. 
maybe it's because I'm not super wired to have a lot of the physiology and research memorized. I think there are some things that I'm good at, but I like, I just like talking to people who have such an intellectual bandwidth with the information out there, and it helps me to refine my own process. And so uh, today on the show, we are going to get into a few things. Um, the main, the theme of the show, if you will, could probably be facts and fallacies with exercise physiology, specifically the hormonal and endocrine systems and the way that we think about testosterone in training, for example, this idea that uh, go squat big and bench big or whatever, you know, big lift, and you're going to get this this T boost and it's going to make everything else better. And um, if you listen to the teaser a little bit and talk as you listen to Ben throughout the show, you realize that that isn't quite exactly the way it is. Uh, He's also going to get on the same ideas along the lines of the endocrine system. We also spend a lot of time in the show talking about things like meditation, restoration, how to really switch over from training mode to recovery mode. And Ben's going to share some of the methods that he utilizes with that, which are very versatile and really give you the keys to your own creativity with helping athletes to switch gears faster and get into their recovery methods and mechanisms faster. So some great, uh, some great practical information on that front end. On the back end of the show, Ben is, and, and this is another thing I noticed on the Train Adapt Evolve website, was just Ben's knowledge of PRI, Postural Restoration Institute, and simplifying these complicated um, you know, three-letter certifications you get down to just practical, usable training without making everything too complex, sticking with the philosophies, but also knowing how to put things in its own time and place. And so at the end of the show, Ben's going to give us some great, great practical ideals on how to really kind of filter a lot of these these posture and function-based training ideas down into practical, practical usable chunks. Through end-to-end, this was a fantastic show. I was thoroughly entertained and informed while recording it, and it was a pleasure to have Dr. Ben House on the show. That being said, let's get to episode 163. Hey, Ben, welcome to my show. Thanks for being here today, man. It's, it's It's an honor. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we were just talking a little bit before the show and you said something about meditating, lifting and eating. Would that be like, would that be like kind of a, a, a di- the daily routine or the daily process for you in terms of your own training right now? Yeah. So I'll, I'll generally wake up in the morning and then, um, I'll do a sit and then I'll walk. So I'll sit for anywhere between normally I'll just light an incense stick. And then if I can go for the entire one, that's like 28 minutes, I'll do that. Um, if I got a bunch of stuff to do, then I'll, um, I'll cut that short. And then I'll generally uh, do some work and then I don't, my days, then I lift generally in the mid morning and then, um, and then train. So training and then eating and, uh, and working and then hanging out with family. So, yeah, but that's a, that's the, that's pretty much my life. (laughs) And and it's, it hasn't come, it didn't just happen overnight, but just being in, just being in charge of my own schedule is, 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 uh, sometimes I'm not, but, uh, the majority of days I, I get to be in charge of it and, and that's fun. Yeah. Living in Costa Rica, it's like, you know, no clocks. If there was no clocks, you'd just use a incense stick as the timer. That definitely works pretty well. It kind of probably keeps with the vibe of a, like a little bit of a step back from <laughs> the digitized, uh, the digitized satiety in a sense. Yeah, I really like it in terms, and so I'll, sometimes I'll just run a half incense stick or just staying. Like I think a lot of we've really westernized meditation, and so to kind of take a step back from that, and and um, my dad's a he's a ordained uh, Buddhist priest, I guess you would call him. Um, so he's been sitting for a really long time now, and uh, and so that was kind of under his recommendation. Is like so many of my things have numbers and they're very regimented. And I'm a very regimented person. I like numbers. Um, and so he was just like, hey, just uh, just just take it, just cut that out. Yeah, that was helpful. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, here, yeah, here in the States, it's like, hey, do you want to start meditation? Check out Headspace, you know, I mean, and it's great. And don't get me wrong, but it's like, you know, just the fact that you have to go like, it's always through the phone. And it's always like, it just I mean, there's such a value in separating from the digital just for a little bit of that. And so I think I think that's cool, man. It's a it's definitely a a different way of thinking. But I think it's a great way of, of linking into all that. Yeah, I don't know that there's good or bad. Headspace can Headspace can be super helpful. Calm, all those apps can be can be really really helpful for people. I I think guided meditation is a stepping stone. I think eventually, just like training, like these these models that we have for progression, I think that you you eventually as as Headspace as you get better and better at Headspace, or I don't know if you get better at it, but um, you just, as you keep going on their continuum, um, 
Andy shuts up for longer and longer times, uh, okay. which, is, which, is, which is essentially, so you're getting to this point where, yeah, you can, uh, and there's so many different types of meditation too, like focused attention versus um, just, just being aware of your thoughts and, and kind of not following them. And so I don't, I don't, there's, to me, there's not right or wrong. It's just more of like an adherence issue and then trying different things to see if like at different points in your life, you might be ready for something else. Yeah. Yeah. No knock on headspace either. And I only, yeah, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I only try like the first few. So obviously there's more guidance. Right. And like, um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I don't shoot, I don't know if I had this in the questions, but it's interesting to me is, as someone was telling me about the martial arts and a lot of times there's like a meditation or a silence period that's before and after the, the training or conditioning or skill session. And I think that that's, I'm always looking at like integration, like looking at how we integrate Eastern and Western ideas and things like that. And I, I mean, when's the last time you walked in a, a Western uh, training session, you know, especially in the, the, the strength and conditioning machine that we have here and, and see people meditate before. And I mean, I think it does happen. I think that's, it's outside often, but I, I think that it's definitely something that's more specific to the martial arts right now, but I definitely enjoy doing stuff like that within the training session. Is that something that, how do you view that in a, assistance with training? Do you do any visualization or anything like that? Or is it just, is it just more of a meditation that's on its own for the sake of, of uh, other things? Yeah. So I don't do, I don't do a ton of practicing lifting in my head. Um, I'm not a professional athlete, but I, mm-hmm. that definitely can be really, really helpful to do that first person visual stuff. Um, I just don't take myself that seriously at this point <laughs> in, my, in my own, in my own training career. Uh, sometimes I still snatch in my head and think that I'll be able to, to lift what I used to be able to lift. But, um, we, we, when, when I trained a lot of people in person, we generally, uh, we ran some type of testing on, on the table in the beginning. And then we would finish every session with, with heart math. So they would check out with like every, so if I had, I did, a, I did more personal training, so I did more one-on-ones. And so I would have, everybody would come in, we do some type of, some type of table testing and then, and then we train. And then afterwards they would do, they would do heart math because it, it tends to work a little bit better. Um, in my mind, that's a, that's kind of a weird little, it's a HRV biofeedback tool. It, it, there's a lot of research on it and it, it's a good way to make sure that someone is kind of calming down. Um, and in terms, so a lot of people, if you, if you just tell them to like meditate on a cushion, they're probably, it's not going to be very helpful for them in the beginning. Um, from a, from a physiological standpoint, it might be helpful from a psychological standpoint. They might learn to see their thoughts, but from a physiological standpoint, they might not get too big of a shift. And so that, that, that's where some of those apps can come in. Um, so different things can do different types of changes. And so that's what, that's what we use because we were more after that physiological response. Yeah, right on. So heart math. So you're saying, and that's one of the questions I had for you on the day, but like, so it, it, it's a version of HRV or how is it different than HRV? It is HRV. So they're, they're just looking at, um, your ability to, to increase your HRV. Um, I think it's an RMSSD. It's based off your ear. So it's a lot easier to hook up. You don't need a heart rate band. Um, you could use sweet beat. Sweet beat does a similar thing and where your goal is just to, they call it coherence. It's your breathing patterns related to your, to your heart rate. And so the, that, the, yeah, you'd have to, I didn't do a ton more research than that on heart math. I just saw like, wow, these guys, these guys have done their work. Uh, maybe that's a, maybe that's a shot at me. I should have done more, but I've definitely anecdotally, and I don't do this a lot, but like anecdotally, I use heart math. If, um, if I can't fall asleep, like it seems to be, so there's different, there's different times where I would use different tools. Like, so if I just try to count my breaths or do some type of focused attention meditation, that generally it can put me asleep, but it's not as quick as if I have something. Cause a lot of people perseverate on thoughts. So they just like keep thinking about the same thing. So they need something else to look at or think about. Um, especially in the beginning, that's why guided meditation apps can look so good or using a candle or an incense stick and just like kind of watching it and coming back to it. And or a mantra practice. These are these are all things that that people can use that that give their mind something to hold on to, um, and that that they'll come back to again and again. And so heart math just has a has a wheel that spins, and then you breathe with a pacer, so you can set the breathing pace no matter like whatever you want, eight seconds in, eight seconds out. Um, and so that's 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 pretty helpful. So you're basically like it's kind of like coaching, or it's a guided way to get your uh, system back into parasympathetic or your HRV higher after the training session. 
Yeah, I, I don't know, like this, this idea of like HRV being able to tell you if you're parasympathetic or sympathetic, like there's a lot of, I, I guess, I don't know, in the research world, like people are getting mad at that now, like uh, this idea that like the polyvagal theory, like that's being, uh, that's being really, really like scrutinized. And so I, I, I think it calms people down what we're doing. Yes. Maybe we're putting people, we're giving, putting people in a parasympathetic shift. Um, maybe we're increasing our MSST scores and, and, but I think the biggest people will feel calmer. And I think that that's, that's really, that's really important. So, and, and just creating that space. I think that's what most of, um, that's what headspace is obviously after is just creating that gap and then just, dropping into a more calm state you could say like maybe a default mode for your mind that's like from a neuro neuroscience standpoint if you look at um like the modular mind and and i'm this is not my area of focus but <laughs> if you look at that like meditators who've who've been med they, and this is mostly observational stuff like people who have been meditating for 25 years they they kind of rest on that default mode network um and so they're they're more present less less reactive Gotcha. Yeah, the the default mode versus the experiential mode, right? Correct. All right, right. I, I I wrote something about that a while ago. For some reason, I was thinking I don't I don't want to rabbit hole this off because I was like that that takes me to something entirely different. But um, no, back to what you were saying. I uh, that was like what Mike Mike T Nelson. I had him on the show back. It was like episode forty something. So it was like almost three years ago. But I always I will always remember him talking about. I believe he, he had, it was like after the session, his client sessions were over, I think he said when they got in their car or something to do, like to have an awareness of their breathing. Um, and so it, it seems like with the heart math, even an awareness of your, does it use the breathing to help calm the heart rate down? Or what's the, like, what, what if you didn't have a heart math, like what, what would be the, what's the kind of the gist of how you're, how you're steering your, your HRV? It would just be, they're using box breathing. That's, that's, they're using box breathing. And then, um, there's different screen, the, there's a pacer that is on an eight second inhale, eight second exhale oh, okay. or whatever you could, you could change it to six. You can kind of change the, the way that it, um, the pacing of the breathing, but the, and then it tells you, it kind of, it can show you, they call it a coherent score. I'm guessing it's a, it's an RMSSD calculation based on HRV coming off. It's on your earlobe. So I don't, it's probably not that accurate, but you can see kind of, um, you can see that increase and you can, then you can have, they have different levels. So they gamify it. Like, um, like every app is going to do, mm -hmm. and then it's going to be harder and harder to push the, the dial green. Um, as you, as you challenge yourself more with heart math. Cool. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, the that's the gist. I don't, um, I'll recommend it for people who have uh, trouble with not being like people who are super OCD. Like if I have a client and I get, if, if they email me and then I email them a response like a day later, and then I get a response back in like one minute, I immediately know like, <laughs> okay, this, this, this person is super plugged in. They're going to struggle. So I need to give them, um, I need to give them a stepping stone. Um, and so I'm going to, kind of use that digital world and that they're fully immersed in and not and i think that we all are at some point um but that's that's generally where i use it people that i know are going to have a lot of trouble sitting still and if you look at the research like people would generally rather shock themselves than sit in silence so this is not <laughs> i i always thank people whenever because we have we have lots of we have groups that come down and I always, uh, we had a, it was really cool. We had a Costa Rican training camp, um, on the 1st of August and, uh, it was 15 Costa Rican. Um, some of my friends, some people I've never met and they all, every one of them showed up for meditation at six 30. Uh, and so that was, that was, uh, that was fun. And explaining, uh, what is explaining how, like what is meditation and what we're trying to do was in Spanish was, it was, <laughs> was, was fun. Yeah, that that communication uh, barrier, especially with something like that, uh, I could see that being a really interesting interesting state. Um, so the box, so basically for those of us who don't have heart math, like just like post session box, so eight seconds in, eight seconds out for like three, four, five minutes, something like that. That would be more likely than not an effective general way to at least get athletes started in that that world of calming things down. Yeah, you could do a you could do a, you could do an inhale exhale hold and then inhale exhale hold. You could do 
like yeah you could you could even turn it into kind of a repositioning exercise if you wanted to like put people in a good position maybe they don't they're not crazy activating their hamstrings or anything like that hmm. but just like feeling their yeah you could do i mean there's so many different ways you could take it like you, there's you can do body scans body scan body scans generally work pretty well you could have a feldenkrais class that you played for people just do five minutes of that um so maybe it doesn't feel as weird but i think the biggest <laughs> thing is you're just trying to have something that that calms them down because i think a lot of people who who really like to train their only stress reliever in their life is another stressor hmm, and so yeah. you have we, ha we have to give them we have to give them other tools so I, like i have I've, i find that a lot of people that i coach they generally have two stress relievers one of them is food and the other one is is exercise and those are two coping strategies that i don't really want people to use with stress um and i don't think of stress as negative i, I like my one of my favorite books is the upside of stress um, and, and I think that we need stress and I think that our mindset around stress is really, really important. Like if we believe that we're going to break, then stress is going to be very, very debilitating. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, uh, I think we're just trying to give people more tools and the more tools that we have, the better, because then they can pick things just like diets. They can pick things that they gravitate towards. And then, then as long as they adhere, that's what you're after is you can get people to like, you can get people consistent and then, um, with whatever they like, that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned that. Like, um, well, first off, like the idea of using it, the repositioning in there, like, cause I know one of the questions I had, I don't know if we'll get to it, but talking about like simplifying PRI, right. Or like as the, as the more you can get like two for ones and things like that within a training session. So I, everyone listen to this, I'll, I will be doing some box breathing in the 90, 90 wall position after my next workout. Um, and I'm excited because hopefully I get a nasty hammy burn with all that too. Uh, but I, I like that what you said too, like exercise is a stress people who use that. Um, and it's almost like, it's almost like they probably should be doing like a Tai Chi class or something instead, but you know, they're not going to pick that. <laughs> they're going to pick the gnarliest no. class they can to, or, or mode they can to try to feed their, feed their machine when that's not really what they need. And, um, it's always interesting trying to teach people what they really need. And, I mean, ultimately, we do need to train hard at some point, but uh, that's always an interesting battle for me and, and people who have particular mindsets with how they go about it. Yeah, wants versus needs is tough, especially as a coach, because you have to manage expectations and people have people have expectations of what they're going to do when they come see you for exercise. And I, so I think, I think managing those is, is really, really important. And like, you can't just tell people like you can't just roll on the floor and for 60 minutes and then kick them out. Like, cause yeah. that's not going to, that's not going to, you're not meeting their expectation. They're, and I, their expectations are generally like they want to feel heat. Mm -hmm. They want to feel acid. They want to sweat. And these are all things that I don't care about at all. These are all just like, these are, they want to, maybe they want to feel, they probably want to feel sore. Like they want to talk about how sore they are. Um, and so these are all things that people want to sense and want to feel for that experience. But those are all things that I'm never chasing as a coach. Um, but I might chase them in the beginning just to hook line and sinker them from a behavioral standpoint and just to give them what they want. And then maybe towards the end, I can, I can kind of put these, put some of this stuff in through the back end. Yeah. You, kind of, you sneak it in there. <laughs> you sneak it in there till it slowly kind of becomes routine. Uh, I feel like that's at least my route of things. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense. Like if you look at like behavioral strategies is like, that's the, you have to, you have to do that. I think that if in the people that like are, are very rigid about those types of things. They generally, you know, maybe they're, they're at a point where they, they can do that because they have an audience. Um, but, and, the, and those people are specifically coming to them with that expectation. But if you're not in that, if you're, if you're dealing with like, you know, college athletes or, or high, even high school athletes, like these are things that you're, you're going to have to sneak in. Yeah, no, no doubt. I've becoming, I've been becoming a lot more adept in that over the last few years. Um, and on that topic too, uh, so sympathetic versus parasympathetic aspects of the nervous system, uh, being in one state or the other, I, I've heard of things like, uh, like, like kind of training in a slight parasympathetic state or, uh, or, I mean, like we were just talking about, you get in kind of fight or flight and you shut it off. I mean, that that swing from sympathetic to parasympathetic how do you approach that when training like athletes or clients or consulting uh so anytime you go above 60 percent vo2 max you're gonna you're gonna get cortisol you're gonna hopefully be sympathetic so i, I think of the weight room as a as a place where you want to get sympathetic I, the your 
probably chasing variability there. Like you want as high, your high is going to be as high as your low. Um, and if you look at, you know, most, most crazy strong people, yeah, they can be super wired, but and anecdotally, they can also, they can be really, really calm and then they can, they can fire it up when they need to. Um, some of them are just fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> but the, the big thing to me is I want to see, I want to see that variability. And, and I know that if, if you're, you know, if you are training, that should be a stressor on your system. It should be sympathetic and whatever we want to call that. Yes. I think it is the sympathetic nervous system because we want that to be online. We want, we want those fuels to be mobilized. We want cortisol. These are things that we want, um, in, in the mix. And so that's, um, I want to, and the other big thing is you probably want to have like some sort sense of completion. So I think that's why a lot of people use exercise as a stress reliever because it can kind of close that stress loop. And so I'm not, if they use it in that way, um, like if you have a ton of psychological stress and like maybe you do like a 30 second sprint on airdyne and you're done just to kind of close that stress loop. Cause we don't have like, if you, if a duck gets in a fight, like then it afterwards, it just flaps its wings and then it's, <laughs> and it kind of dis- dissipates the, the stress response. And so that's one of the big things that, that I'm after is, is just that, that variability and in, in terms of, of stressors and being able to turn it off. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, so so imagine like something like heart math would be a good way to detect that. Is there any other ways to to kind of see how good of a switching you are? I mean, I'm sure there's some just observational qualities as well that a good coach can just see. But what are some ways of like looking at athletes and saying, okay, like you you're pretty good at getting out of this fight or flight, um, like nose breathing or anything like that, or, or how how do you? What are some ways to really go about that? Man, I don't know. The I would say how fast they can kind of yeah, if you're looking at you probably just know like how fast they can calm down. Uh you could use like heart math, how fast you can get it green. I don't know that it's gonna help you from the performance side. I think that just like you just want people to be able to have different characteristics in their life. Like you just mm-hmm. want them to be able to go and then them to be able to not be in like you can't be doing CrossFit and thinking about CrossFit all day long. You're going to, eventually you're going to burn down. Um, and so I think that for, and for sports, you probably, and normally athletes are pretty good at this. They're pretty good at compartmentalizing, um, their kind of their athlete life versus their, maybe not anymore, but, um, at least when, when I worked with them, they, they tended to be pretty good at, they, they almost treated practice kind of workmanlike, um, and I appreciated that. Yeah. And sorry, I kind of threw that question out of left field. It's like one of those idealistic questions. Like, is there like an app that you can, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just, uh, so no, I totally, I, and I asked that too, from just like a sense of, I know some, some things that like creative coaching colleagues of mine have done, uh, like a guy named Paul Cater, uh, Salinas, Ohio or California, he would have like athletes stop in the middle of a lift and like have to throw darts or like put a golf ball or something, you know, like, I guess to show that you can get back to focus or I guess like biathlon, right. Would be the ultimate, um, biathlon and the winter Olympics has always been suggested as the ultimate example of that. And I, I, I mean, I imagine those guys do have to get there and girls do have to get their heart rate down a little bit to shoot well, or you'd think the people who could do oh, it better. Yeah. Can, yeah. yeah being able to focus and uh, I mean, it's, it's that we're after, I think most of our athletes were just after a flow state. And so if we can, if we can get them there uh, and then we don't want, I mean, you want unconscious competence. You want it. You don't want to be thinking when you're, when you're, you know, when you're pulling up for three with four seconds left, like that's probably a bad idea. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think that uh, just yeah, the ability to maintain that throughout a variety of demands or being robust is is certainly certainly of the essence. And especially with um, I think there's definitely an art form too, especially with the skill sports versus strength sports and things with a lot of demands and things like that. Um, let me ask you something more that's that I've heard you talk about before that I'm really excited to ask you. Uh, so when it comes to like strength and performance, uh, key players in the endocrine system, and specifically. I think one of the things that people talk about a lot, and I research, I researched this a lot when I wrote my last book, Speed Strength, was people always talk about heavy lifts and testosterone. And 
that impacting other things and in athletically or other lifts you do and if, if it's in a certain sequence or anything like that. And so I'm curious what your take is on the role of heavy lifting and testosterone and the nervous system and that, that general aspect of performance. Yeah. So that's the hormone hypothesis, this idea that, you know, the way that you train can boost some type of anabolic hormone and that can produce, that can augment your results that you would get. Uh, we see the same thing, ironically, like with intermittent fasting and growth hormone, which is like completely just crazy to me. Like, yeah, you're going to have an anabolic fast. Um, (laughs) but, but from a, from an exercise standpoint, the, this hasn't, panned out as much as we thought it was going to pan out. Um, and so the hormone hypothesis doesn't seem to hold much water. Um, the the hormones are really, really like people, every people want them to matter so, so much. Like, and I'm not saying that they don't matter. Um, but, and they definitely do. If you go past physiological ranges, like you can put on, you know, 12 pounds of muscle in, in 10 weeks, if you go on, you know, not even that, high, high of a dose of testosterone. Like, um, so yes, anabolic steroids outside of physiological ranges can work, but if you think about the area under curve of a hormone, so testosterone is going to, you know, it's, it's, it's going to peak in the morning and it's going to has, it has other peaks during the day, but, um, it's, it's not going to stay the same throughout the day. And so it's going to have this curve that it has and naturally throughout the day. And then you're going to have the area under that curve. So if you imagine like just one small blip in that for, you know, maybe an hour. And then maybe, maybe you can get some kind of androgen receptor. There's, it looks like the androgen receptor will be upregulated too. So, so maybe there is a little bit something there, but if you look at the recent, like, um, Stu Phillips lab did a lot of this, like with, with different arm testing and having one group, you know, do legs and then arms. And, and so they, they, but it doesn't seem to have, at least from a hypertrophy standpoint, it doesn't have, it doesn't hold much water. Um, and so I think that the, the big, I wouldn't chase any type, like I'm not doing certain intervals to produce a growth hormone response. Like I I think that's not the way to think about training. Um, to me, like I would never chase an endocrine adaptation. I would never chase something Mm -hmm. happening in the endocrine system with my training. Um, the now if you're talking about like baseline physiological levels of testosterone, so say someone has that 300 nanograms per deciliter versus someone who's at 800 nanograms per deciliter. I think that could make a difference, but the pro the, how do you, how do you research that? Because testosterone is almost like a, it's a canary in a sense. So there's so many things that can knock down testosterone. You could, you could have like a medical problem, like a varicocele, or you could have, you could have had a TBI in the last 10 days, or you could have persistent hypogonadalism from a TBI two years ago. Um, so there's, there's medical stuff. And then there's also like, what's your, are you not eating enough calories? Are you eating, you know, are you overweight and over, over fat? And that's why the reason that your testosterone is low or you, or do you have sleep apnea? And so there's so many, there's so many things that could lower your essentially your basal or your resting, or did you just take it at a different time? So there's so much noise inside of that measurement that comparing observationally, comparing someone to 800 to 300, you're not just comparing testosterone levels, you're comparing so many other things and likely in their life. Um, and so, yeah, that I think that getting someone, so say they're out of 400 and you get them sleeping better, you get them eating better. Um, you do all those things. And then all of a sudden they, they, they adapt. I, my, my hunch would be that, that that's not necessarily from them. A part of it might be go from going to 400 to 800 for sure, but that's probably not the majority of that variance is not explained by that change. I would guess it's explained by the change and all the other things that they did, um, to get to that point. Um, and so that's something that we try to simplify this, this hormone talk, like more testosterone (laughs) after training, that's going to be better, but like, nah, it's, this is not likely significant. It's likely a drop in the water when you think about how much testosterone is there throughout the day. Um, and so, there's some research like, hey, maybe you can look at testosterone to cortisol ratios to see what people, what exercise, what workouts people gravitate toward, like what's going to be better for them. I don't think that that's going to play out very well. Um, just, I just don't think that it matters as much as we want it to matter. Yeah, that, no, I'm glad you settled that. I know when I was doing all the research in that, so when I was writing my book, Speed Strength, initially I was of the opinion that there are certain big movements or big lifts in the weight room where 
uh, one of the advantages was the testosterone release because you would hear that a lot. You'd hear that in the strength and conditioning community. So I set out to do all this research to kind of validate that, I guess. But everything I was finding was actually showing that it wasn't the case, just like what you were saying. Um, at least the improvements not from a testosterone perspective of these lifts. And so it, it does make me think, even like the difference between training males and females, where the females have a way lower level, but they'll still get similar responses to the big lifts, especially the ones who are the sensitive, the, the, like the real ner powerful nervous system people who get that charge off that. And it just makes me think, you know, the potentiation and motor recruitment threshold firing and all that. Yes, absolutely. But I think it's almost like we just want to put everything, say this, this cures everything, you know. And I, yeah, I'm glad you said that because it really confirmed everything that I found in doing my own research as well. Yeah, females generally can put about 85% of the muscle on than men as men. Um, and so like relatively, they put just as, a, just as much muscle as men and they have a 20th of the testosterone. Um, and not, and they, they probably use growth hormone a little bit differently, mm -hmm. um, than we do. But the, the fact is, is just like, we want, and I'm not saying that hormones don't matter. Like the yeah. hormones are why you're hormones are why you're a man and why you're a woman for sure. But in terms of, of the training stimulus, um, I, I almost think of them and we don't have a ton of research, unfortunately, and we probably never will on people taking anabolic steroids is, I almost think of them as separate wells as you have this, you have all the muscle and all your adaptations that you can put on from exercise. And then probably what you get from testosterone and, and probably you, you do get the ability to take on more volume. So you can, you can influence your training for sure. Um, and I think that's where a lot of these, the, a lot of the synergies, there's not like how Kai green got to 290 pounds <laughs> at 6% body fat is like a lot of factors, right? A lot of, a lot of things working together. And so, but, I think that these are separate wells and um, James Krieger has a really good post on variation in basal um, testosterone levels and, and training stimuluses. And that it's probably, these are, you're probably getting them from two different places. And, and one of the coolest studies and terrible studies was they, they took guys and they gave them a GNRH agonist, which, which shuts down their testicular axis. I don't think this would make it past IRB anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely, it was, it was back in the, it was, it was in 2006. So maybe, maybe it's still what if, if you could get, if you get people to sign, gonna sign up for that, <laughs> dude, these guys were young too, like in their twenties, I felt so bad. And it, and it, it was, it was like a, ten, it was like a 10 week study too, where you're just going to shut down people's HPT accesses. And, um, and so they, they found that they had them do a, a pretty legit training protocol. These guys were untrained, but even with literally, and it was a placebo versus, um, versus a GNRH agonist. And they, these guys, even with having like literally no testosterone, like zero, um, they still put on muscle mass in their legs hmm. and their arms. Wow. Um, not as much as the placebo, which had normal testosterone levels, hmm. but it's not like it completely dissipated the training response. Like they still put on almost two pounds of lean body mass in 10 weeks. Um, and so that, that to me is, is like, I'm not saying these things don't matter, but they do, but I think that they're probably indicative of a lot of other, of other things. And then the confounders inside of that measurement, there's so many of them, like there's 17 different things that can lower testosterone inside that, that we can, that we know of right now, there's probably a ton more. Um, and so that, that's my view on, um, uh, hormones are really, really important. It's not, to, it's not a lot to do mm -hmm. about nothing, but they're also like people, they can, people can sell things with the, the this is the GH program. Like it's very easy to sell shit with this stuff. The glass case in the nutrition. <laughs> of course. Yeah. It, it's, it's really easy to sell extremes. It's really, but it's, it's harder to be like, it's harder to play the context card and be like, yeah, this, this stuff matters, but uh, not in the, in the, not in terms of the acute response, but maybe it matters if you are low and you, and you, you, like you could have been, you were higher in your life. Um, and now you're not sleeping very well and, and maybe you're overstressed or whatever that means. Um, and so these are, these are all indicative of, of bigger problems than, than testosterone. So I think of it, I think of it more as a canary. Yeah. That's interesting. No, it's interesting to think too, like, okay, like, you know, I'm, 
you know, 400 testosterone or whatever the measurement is, and I get up to 800 or something. I don't know if anyone could jump that high, but like to think that is it really just the, just the testosterone that would improve or everything else that came with getting that up there, you know, that was, you know, holding you back before or, or even how testosterone cortisol cortisol ratio uh, impacts it. Cause I've heard that that's almost more important, the, the testosterone cortisol ratio than testosterone itself. But I'm sure there's so many factors. I, I, I almost get confused by it every time I kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit, but it's uh it's certainly an interesting world or area of, of thought. Yeah. None of the, unfortunately, like we've been looking for a good indicator of overtraining or overreaching for, for a really long time. <laughs> and none of the hormones really pan out as far as like a 2017 meta-analysis. So the, I think that the best indicator that, and then we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of hypotheses of what's happening with overtraining the cytokine hypothesis, probably holding uh, the most weight. And, and so you, when we're really thinking about it from an athletic standpoint, like what is, what is the best definition that we have for overtraining or what is the best market that we have for overtraining? It's, it's an increase in training volume or training intensity met with a decrease in performance. And so if, if that's, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to hammer away at it and you're getting worse, um, you're probably in that range of overreaching overtraining. You're probably playing with fire um, and you can take down your training stimulus or you can try to recover harder, I guess. Um, and eventually you're, but none of the, like, if you look at observationally people that are in functional overreaching or are in fact overtrained, uh, they generally don't have a significant difference from normal people in terms of hormone profiles, at, at least anabolic hormones in the research. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah. Just an area where it's best to keep it simple. Like don't try to dig into it too far. It's if you're getting worse, um, well, anyways, um, but the, uh, it, it is really interesting with that. And I, you know, one thing you said, Ben, that really got me to thinking, cause here's another thing I've, I've heard, right? Like, and when we like these, cause it's like, it's, it's smart, it sounds smart. And I'm sure it comes from a really intelligent place in many cases and people who've done more research and process than I have. But you mentioned you don't train for endocrine, um, uh, adaptation. And I've heard, I've heard coaches talk about, uh, training days specifically, for like endocrine working the endocrine system and rest usually that's in the context of restoration like a restoration day where you did like a lot of maybe your heart rate stayed about 130 140 and you did a lot of different variety of tasks and it was kind of this flush recovery day and i've heard that mass matched with this is an endocrine day <laughs> and i've never really knew exactly what that meant it sounded good um but based off what you were saying like the adaptations would maybe come from something else or like like the the blood flow or the flush like is there anything to that? Like, I'm, I'm just kind of curious. I, I don't know. Like you'd have to, they'd have to be a little bit more like if someone said that to me, I'm like, I would, I would be like, what the fuck do you mean? Endocrine? Like what well, the endocrine is an entire hormonal system. Is this like supporting my insulin secretion? Like, what are we like? There's so many different ways you could spin that. Like the, I mean, the adrenal glands hypertrophy from training. Like these are like, you could say your high intensity day is an endocrine day. Hmm. Like, you could, so like to me, I just I people always like just sciencey enough just bothers the just bothers me so much like because that's what people try to do is they try to sell a simple story with science, um, and most of the time these stories are not simple. They're very complex. They're very contextual. Um, they have a lot of layers, and that's why you know that's why scientists generally like pigeonhole into one thing because it's so complex. Like they're one like my dissertation was on meal frequency and I spent four years of my life on eating frequency just to come out with the fact that it probably doesn't matter. Um, and so those are, we want these things to matter and it's easy to sell. People want, they, people will always want from a, from a neuroscience standpoint, they will always want simple stories sold to them. And if you can make them suffer for those simple stories, they're going to, they're going to believe them. They're going to fight for them. Um, and so if you had an endocrine day that just smashed the hell out of you and you wanted to believe that that was the thing and it got you results, like I'm probably not gonna be able to talk you off that cliff. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it is, it's, it's interesting. Or it's like this. Yeah. To think that the endocrine system is more involved on one type of training day and not on another, I guess, like, <laughs> like heavy, like you said, adrenal glands are like, you know, a heavy lifting day versus a more recovery oriented, low intensity day. It's, 
hard to imagine that there's, you know, it's like this day is going to focus on that and this day is not. Or, yeah, I've always wondered, like, yeah, even in hearing that, I was like, well, what? I, I always had a curiosity what parts of that system were being emphasized. So some further analysis would be um, of, of the specific things would be nice on, on when that's mentioned, at least. And maybe it yes. is. Maybe I need to do my research more. Maybe this, whoever it had mentioned that there was more to that. But it's it's so easy to hear something that sounds smart and just be like, yep, okay, cool. All right, Ben, la- uh, last question. Uh, so ho- probably the last question. And I, dude, I've been really excited to talk to you about this because I remember, and I want to say it was the old, there was an old article on the Train and Adapt Evolve website talking about like PRI and just like doing Pavel Satseline's hard style abs and the exhale with the tongue on the roof of the mouth, which I definitely have made my athletes do. And I think the, the hissing thing, I don't think really vibe with them well with the, with the exhale and things like that. But basically like your take on adapting PRI principles and training for performance minded individuals and doing so without overcomplicating and making the warm up you know, excessively long or losing interest. Like how do you, how do you navigate that field uh, where something can be very complex and trying to simplify it down a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, Zach couples course does a really good job of kind of in- intermingling these, these, uh, these respiratory ideologies in this resting state and a lot of the, the anatomy of, of breathing and position and, and kind of mingling that with the training environment. I think he does a really, really good job of that. He's um uh, He's a trainee of Bill Hartman's and obviously Bill does a great job with this stuff too. And, and so I think that the, the principles to me of, and the, these are just, I think, solid principles of, of positioning. And so how, and Ryan and I talk a lot about this in, in our podcast, we've, we've gone probably six or so episodes talking about just the squat and like, and so I think that we want to have a rib cage stacked on a pelvis um, as much as we can in training, um, granted, power exists in probably exhalation, anterior tilt, and a counter-nutated sacrum. Like, that's where power exists. And so, yeah, you're going to get those things, but can you have the ability to keep a pelvis stacked on a rib cage? And I think that's that's really, really important. And, and you can do it a lot. Like, so I think of we have all these repositioning drills. And so people got athletes got into their current situation, probably using a lot of stress. So I'm not necessarily sure that a lot of these tactics that don't involve a lot of stress are going to have that big of an effect size on them. Um, and so that's why I love Pat's rethinking the big pattern seminars, um, because he's kind of, he's talking about adding load to a lot of things, progressing them. And so how we've done that is, is Ryan and I have kind of we've, we've taken a lot of these positions that we're trying like a lot of these. So if you're at really after sagittal plane, you probably want, you know, sagittal plane abs, uh, internal external obliques, transverse abdominis. Like you want, you want to feel abs. Um, you want to feel hamstrings. Uh, you want to feel your heels. Probably those are all things that you want to feel if you're trying to sensory motor manage the, the sagittal plane. And so, uh, we've turned, and that's like step one of, of PRI. And I, I've only, I've only taken, you know, five or six PRI courses. I've been to advanced integration, so I'm not, I'm by no means a PRI expert. Um, and so that I've just had, I've been privileged to be friends and, and work with a lot of people who are a lot better at this than I am. And so I've come out of this, I've come out the other end with kind of a, a really, and so what are, like, if we look at the, like, what are the cost benefit? I'm always, I'm a very like overly analytical person, probably to a fault. And so I'm always doing like cost benefit analysis on everything. And so like, what is the, what is the benefit of a lot of this prehab rehab stuff? It's that someone doesn't get hurt. Right. And so how good, it, like, look at what happened with the FMS, like how good it, how good were we at like predicting injury risk? Like nothing really predicts injury risk that well. Um, the acute to chronic load ratios, like those, those do, those do actually work. Um, and I think they definitely have a lot of ability if you can quantify it. And so to me, it's like, where, where does this stuff fit in? Um, yes, maybe you're adding variability to the system, but they might be pre-positioned in that position anyways, um, just because of their sport, but giving them, you know, if it is a problem, if they are just completely, you know, locked into that one position and they can't get out of it, that could, that could be a problem. And so, um, allowing them to get out of it, but they're probably like, if, if you're like, how much can you change someone's form on a one arm back squat after they've been one arm back squatting for 20 years? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it's more, maybe it's more 
um, more adaptable than we think. Um, but for, but for me, like I'm, I'm mostly thinking, so if I do some, like, say I do a lap pull down, um, can I do that with, you know, a rib cage stack on a pelvis while getting abs and, you know, getting a good exhale. These are all things that, that I want them to, to manage. Um, if I'm, if I'm doing some single leg work, can, you know, can they feel an adductor? Can they, um, can they, can they kind of, and, and, and that's where you get into when people are under load, you don't want them to feel anything. You, you, you want unconscious competence when, but when people are like, that's where this, like, where does this stuff fit, fit in? Probably mostly warm up and cool down. Um, where we've put it in a lot is, is I love it in like learning exercises because mm-hmm. I'll do a lot of statodynamic or tempo work with people. And just like, especially with the squat and the deadlift and, and even the bench press, like a reciprocal um, alternating four plus. And so, but you can just, that's where I would get people to find and feel certain things. If someone is an athlete and they, you know, they can squat 500 pounds, you're probably not trying to like get them to change anything that they find or feel in that when they have 500 pounds in the back, that's probably a really, really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've, they've obviously got, they've, they've made some strategies, not that you can't change that over time. Um, uh, but they've, they've have some compensatory strategies. I think the weight room is like, I, a, a lot of people, even in the general public, they, they want, they kind of want these compensatory strategies to a certain degree. Like if you want, like putting on muscle is going to create a lot of compensatory strategies. Um, and so that's just some of these things probably come just with the weight room. And then we're trying to mitigate their damage. And by mitigating their damage, how much of a benefit does that have to the athlete? I don't know. And we definitely haven't quantified it yet. So the researcher in me is, is skeptical um, of, of what is the effect size of this on, on injury risk and performance. I don't know. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not willing to, to learn and consider that and, 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 and really like going through the confirmation bias about these things. Um, and so that's, that's my take on, on that. I'm not sure if I answered your question. (laughs) No, no worries. No, it's, it's good stuff. I, I, maybe, uh, I can kind of direct more towards, um, like you had made an Instagram post on this where it's like, if you have, you're armed with all these systems, you know, all these, all these systems of analysis, the PRI and FMS and DNS and everything else under the sun out there, you could end up, I think it was an Eric Cressy quote, like you can end up with a warm up that's 45 minutes long, right? Like, and you had said you, you, so a standard might be, you know, PRI take people through the, the various breathing things as part of the workout. But I always feel like, um, like you mentioned, like doing learning things, like lately I've kind of felt like, um, like doing things that tie right in with the main movement, but then the main movement, you aren't thinking about it. Like I was today, my, I've just been thinking lately in my own work, I've, as I've become older, I'm 35 now. And I've, the athlete I've become by being in the weight room a lot and doing typical weight room things and not as much, um, like sport things as I used to do, like playing basketball and, and doing track and things like I've become more over bilaterally overdriven through my lats and things like and become a lot more hinge dominant and and i was going to chat with you too about like the we deadlift twice like the episode nine of your podcast with zach and i was doing a single arm uh lat pull down just to kind of just to kind of do a little bit of work with some sensory work and i decided to put my hand on my rib cage on that same side and it's like on that left side that thing just keeps sticking out so i'm like well just by putting my hand on there i can at least feel it close and it's like maybe a little more integrative and i didn't have to spend a lot of time doing drills uh, i mean is that like is that learning or sensor idea kind of in the ballpark of what you were talking about with um how you're integrating some of those things or how how do you how do you simplifying like the warm up process before the athlete actually lifts and then they aren't feeling anything uh i mean i think that like just getting people to warm up, you're going to change their movement a lot. Um, just kind of getting them. That's, I would just warm people up. Like I, I don't have to warm up. Like they, they did one of the warm up studies that they did was in Brazil and it didn't show any effect because it was in Brazil. Um, and so I live in the jungle, so I don't have to really warm up. Like we don't warm up. Like, but uh, if I was, and Zach just did a post on like, like, yeah, I think like uh, not to say that I just jump into like my 80% one RM for, for mm-hmm. whatever, how many reps, but we definitely warm, we warm up in the sense of our stats, but I don't do anything in my warm up that doesn't look like the exercise that I'm doing. Um, now I'm not an athlete. So like, I'm, I'm literally trying to get as big as possible, which is a very, <laughs> very st- stupid thing to do. Um, 
but it's what I love. And so the, my, that time would be better spent for me. Like if, if I can get in and out of the weight room in an hour versus, you know, spending an hour and a half, it's jimbling around. Um, that's going to be better for me. So the, that being said on, on our easy days, we do do some stuff. We do a zercher squat where we're trying to maintain a counter mutated sacrum. Um, we're trying to find and feel abs. We're trying to feel hamstrings. We're trying to get more quads. Um, we're not trying to let our femurs actually rotate. Um, we're on a heel lift. Like these are all things that we're trying to do, but they're not the main event. They're built into the system on those easier days. Um, from a repositioning side, like the best thing that I could like. So if you think about, um, maybe a 90, 90, like, could you do a tricep extension in a 90, 90, 100%. You could even do a tricep extension hook line, like where you're just getting all kinds of hamstrings. And then can you maintain, can you tie that with breathing? Can you keep ribs down and get abs? Dude, it's wild. Like it's wild. How many stupid accessory bodybuilding exercises you can turn into quote unquote PRI exercises if you know what you're doing. Um, and, and I, and I, that's the other thing is like, if you get, if you talk to, if you talk to a lot of, a lot of these people who are really deep and kind of made this stuff their own, like they get mad, like, you know, oh, no, but none of these acronyms own any of this stuff. And, and so that, that was actually a big issue and I wasn't involved in that issue, but you know, people were, people were getting sued over, over exercises. And I don't know that you can copyright an exercise. I've never like, um, I mean, maybe the Bulgarians are, <laughs> suing people over the split squat but um i i just it's it's really interesting to me um how the the three letter and four letter acronyms can become so tribal when when we really don't know the effect size of a lot of this stuff and um i i feel like i feel like this matters but you know what there's a lot of people that have been super successful um and this hasn't mattered and so the, there's a uh, i try to stay humble about it and i always try to to look at my own confirmation biased uh, about it. And, but I do think there's ways that you can, I don't think it's bad to turn every exercise into an ab exercise or to take, to try to do multiple things at once. But I think you have to make sure that you're by trying to do multiple things at once, you're not doing uh, nothing. And I, I think that that can, that can be the result a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I <laughs> that's an awesome idea. Like, like you're totally right. Like just turning a tricep exercise into that, like hook line, get hamstrings and abs. I, I, I see, I'm always, I'm always thinking of two for ones. How can I make this more efficient? How can I, and like you said, you can't lose, you don't want to lose obviously everything by doing it, but I don't really see how you necessarily would with some of those simple things and on a lighter day. And then, so you're saying on the big, like on your big days, like I'm going to lift hard today, lift heavy. There's not really the PRI thought you're just going like, you're just going to go for it. And, and then the lighter days is that's where a lot of that stuff comes in. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, the other thing is like, I'm not loading up if we think if we just think about a squat like i'm gonna have it's it's really really hard man because the the squat reachers the squat reachers research is like what are why are you squatting like why am i squatting i'm squatting for hypertrophy like what am i what are the limiters in a squat the limiters in the squat are probably you know it's a it's a linear ascending strength curve so it's going to be hardest in the bottom right so what what are the limiters there it's probably adductors maybe you're you do get some glute hypertrophy maybe you get some quad hypertrophy but like you're not going to get as like if you look at the research on like low bar back squatting versus high bar versus front squatting you like you generally get the same amount of quad activation you generally get the same amount of quad hypertrophy so it doesn't look like the quads are really the limiter because of the strength curve um so like i i my my buddy Ethan is really really good at taking um, taking a non emotional view of, of exercises and especially if it's very very easy for bodybuilding. Now if you're talking about an athlete and you want them to jump higher, uh, you might want to do partial squats and regular squats, full range of motion squats, and because then you're in power development land, um, and that's a completely different thing. So it, I think it matters what your goal is, and then you, I think you want to dissect what is this exercise? What is this thing? How is it going to help me? What is the research on that? Is it different from other things? Um, and so a squat is not going to train my rectus femoris, which is a two joint muscle. So what's the only way I'm probably going to train that is a leg extension for my, for my needs as a, as someone who wants to get, get stupidly big legs so that they don't <laughs> fit in anything, uh, which is, uh, which is actually a problem. Um, <laughs> and so, so, and that's, and, and that's not something that a lot of people want like hypertrophy for sport. 
you're you're probably like I was like people are like crossfitters who are already really really good and they're already strong enough like hypertrophy is probably not your thing you probably don't need to put on more muscle like if you're already the best at your sport you've probably naturally built Mm -hmm. you have the amount of muscle that you need right um to be successful now if you're 15 and you need to get bigger and you need to put on mass like yeah this stuff this stuff 100 matters but um it's going to just come how does this happen consistency over time and so i always look at like what is the goal um the strength and power is a lot different than than hypertrophy strength and power are task specific rep range specific every strength is very very specific um whereas hypertrophy is really really dumb you can drive hypertrophy through any if, if you're getting tension on the system that's how you're driving hypertrophy yeah uh <laughs> yeah no it's uh i i like the 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 goal to not be able to not be able to fit in the pants or something like that i have a shirt i'm trying to fill out right now so i'm, I'm in the same boat um <laughs> But uh, no, it's, I, I totally agree with you. And I do think that like that I've definitely gotten to a place a long time ago, actually, where I kind of threw out the idea of the hypertrophy phase for especially established athletes and, and non, especially in non-collision sports. And uh, it's just... It might give uh, their joints a rest. Like that's yeah. the only thing that I think about is like, hey, if you can go to, you know, like higher volume work and and, and like maybe like that's, that's how I think of everything mm-hmm. is like if you could do... Like, could you offload joints by, cause that's going to, what's the thing that's going to get us all? Like even me, it's going to be sickness or injury. And like, how can I prevent that? I can prevent that by, that's why I do a lot of this PRI stuff is cause I don't want to get injured. I think it's a way to prevent, I think it is a way to manage that injury risk. Um, now in bodybuilding and strength training in general, your risks are so abysmally low compared to contact sports. Um, that what am I really protecting against? I don't know. Um, but it's, it's like 0.3 per 10,000 hours. So I might, but you know, um, and so, but what are we trying to do? We're trying to maintain high chronic training loads over time. Um, and so anything that I think helps with that has the potential to help with adaptations. I agree, especially for athletic performance. And it's amazing the things that PRI has that actually fit really well with how athletes work. And especially the idea of, um, well, and I will say too, like the whole warm up thing, as I've got, I'm 35 now. And even when I, like, I sprint and jump a lot. When I sprint, I don't do any drills anymore because the drills don't even actually look like sprinting. I just, I, I barely warm up at all. I just do like, you know, what happened to just doing gradually faster sprints, you know, <laughs> like, like Tom Telez in that group, I think, used to talk about. It's not hard. Like, and I also think we go to like, you, you, we go, nothing. And I, I love PRI, but we can go to all these clinics and all these different systems and schools of thinking and think, man, how do we ever get along unless we use all these acronyms because we're so broken? But I mean, I set my best marks in, in track and field and in, in high jump when I didn't know anything, you know, and like, and I know a lot now and even, even later in my, in my later 20s and it didn't necessarily equal the same results. Like I'm always blown away by how resilient the body is, but I also, shot myself in the foot a little bit by the the lifting extended over time turned me into a much more of a hinger than a squatter <laughs> slowly and uh, even like the rotation of the pelvis like we were talking about the nutation of the sacrum like in the zercher squat and i think so many athletes lose that they just turn into lumbar extenders over time which takes away from i'm kind of yeah i'm taking this a totally different direction but i i totally it's like it's like on one level on one level, just, you know, warm up and go, but then on the level of, of mitigating, mitigating, I guess, structural loss or, or movement quality loss over time, uh, for the athletic uh, individual, I think it is really important. Yeah. They, they probably want more degrees of freedom because their sport involves a lot of degrees of freedom. Um, and they need to, they need to be capable in those, you know, but it's, it's like one of Pat's analogies all the time is like, you don't need to teach a baseball player how to turn a double play in every way, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you can sign your name with your elbow. You can sign your name with your nose. Like, you know how to do that movement pattern. So you don't need to practice it in every possible scenario. <laughs> so I think like giving, giving people access to these things is the key. And like, what do I need to access? I need to access sagittal plane, nonsensical, you know, like, and so that that's where we like, what is functional exercise? It's so, so tainted. Like the it's exercise that helps you adapt to what you want to do. Um, and so that's um, I'm, I'm excited that I even get to, you know, have, I'm honored that I even get to ask these questions and, you know, get to get to really 
because I'm kind of the guy. I'm I'm the annoying questioner guy who wants to like see the numbers. I'm always I've always been that guy, and so I I see a lot of this stuff, and I'm like, oh, we can. How can we test this? How can we run a longitudinal trial? How can we you know how can we look at EMG of of this squat that you're doing, and how can we add to the body of research? Because right now the body of research doesn't necessarily fit. Doesn't necessarily it doesn't look too good. Um, if you know, we're not seeing different EMGs from low bar back squats to, to front squats, like, yeah, we're seeing different torso angles, like, yes. Um, but really the limiter in the squat is the limiter in your front squat is not your legs. It's your back. Like, that's why you can low bar back squat a lot more because you know, the back is the, is ironically lumbar extension is the limiter in squatting. Um, so who are like, you look at power, like extremely, really, really good power lifters, their quads aren't really that big, like natural ones. Um, they're just really good. They're like, they do, they deadlift twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the suits that the suits assist that, uh, double deadlift too, I'm sure. Um, and, and that whole, that whole system of, of training and work. So I'll, I'll last, just, just kind of closing comments. I, I like as well, like the idea of giving athletes options, more movement options. I think that's not really kind of like thought of enough in terms of we're going to train athletes and you know, we're going to get increase your sprinting and jumping and your strength and all but giving up, op, giving you options is kind of like down on the list. <laughs> you don't hear that. You don't hear that said a lot. I, I like, I like that, um, that little analogy you had there. I just think it's an important reminder. Yeah, man, it's, it's been fun. I really, I really appreciate chatting with you and uh, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for all that you do and, and how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show, Ben. I, I really appreciate it, man. <laughs> that wraps up another show thanks for being with us today i really appreciate you guys listening and um that was such a that was just another great show for the library just diverse train of thought just another end of that training bandwidth and one that i think i don't typically spend a whole lot of time really covering really into the physiology but also even the meditation and restoration these are all important ends of the spectrum and i can't thank ben enough for being on the show if you enjoyed it uh, head over to itunes stitcher leave us a rating or review i would really be I would be jazzed if you uh, did that. Maybe right now. I know it's it's uh, if you're driving, it might be tough. But drop us five stars again. I'm trying to get to 200 ratings by the end of the year, and every uh, every rating helps. We're just trying to spread the message of this show and um, just helping coaches and athletes uh, just be a little better informed in their training process and methods, and experiencing that joy of what the human body can offer in the physical space. All right. Our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, new items in the store. Check, um, Head over to simplyfaster.com, check out their blog, their store, see what they have. They're constantly updating to get that, that best of in each category of sports technology. So make sure you visit them. They've been awesome sponsors for us. And we'll be back next week with another great guest. Have a good one.